Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jonathan Kilpatrick, Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. Today, I'm joined by Derek Schmitz, SFA's new Minnesota Dairy Initiative Coordinator, for a conversation about his journey to regenerative agriculture, his dairy farm, the Minnesota Dairy Initiative, and the role he fills with SFA for them. Thanks for joining me today, and welcome to Dirt Rich, Derek. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited and looking forward to this conversation, uh, learning more about your story and journey to SFA as our, our new Minnesota Dairy Initiative Coordinator, and also learning more about your background. So let's start there, your story of becoming a dairy farmer and to where you are today. So just tell our listeners about your journey and yeah, how you got there. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Derek Schmitz. Um, I farm near Cold Spring with my wife, Taylor, and my two, almost three children. We milk oh, about 70 cows in a forage-based system. We also cut some grapes and stalkers and run some sheep and do some other things like that. Um, and I guess I started farming on my own in 2014. We purchased some heifers in the fall of 2013 and then some more cows in spring of 2014. And uh, we uh, just <laughs> started figuring out as we went. Um, I knew I always wanted to farm. Uh, I grew up on a dairy and my dad sold the cows when I was seven. So you know, 13 years after that, I was back to being a dairy farmer. So we were luckily able to start dairying on a farm where I was also a herdsman at. And um, it was a conventional dairy. And um, they were nice enough to give us some space and some space in the barn and some space outside and some smaller pieces of grass that weren't necessarily economical for them to, to harvest. And uh, we just started grazing from there. We always knew that grazing had to be a part of our operation. I was had a passion for it. And I, I just really enjoyed seeing cattle on grass and starting with basically nothing. It was just a economical way for us to get into it without all the equipment and the headaches and the facilities. Seasonal calving and housing cows outside just made sense to me. And um, we've farmed at a couple other farms since then. And now we finally ended up by Cold Spring and we're at our, yeah, our current size. So Awesome. So what was it about dairy farming that attracted you to it? Like what, why, why the dairy farm as opposed to a lot of the other types of agriculture you see around Minnesota, you know, crops or beef or, you know, poultry, pigs, you know, so I'm just curious what, what drew you to dairy specifically? I guess I always just knew it. I mean, we've, we've always dairied as a family and that's not always the best reason to do something that you do, but um, I've, I've always enjoyed the cows and the calves and the, um, the whole cycle of a calf being born and raising that calf and watching that calf join the herd and see how it performs as a mature cow. And I like spending a lot of time with my animals and getting to know them really well. It just, I've never dreamt of doing anything else. It's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. Right. Uh, that's as well as I can sum it up. Great. You said something about you knew that grazing was going to be a part of it. I'm just, that's, really really unique too so what what led you to that knowing that grazing was going to have to be a part of your operation well growing up as a kid when my dad had the cows we grazed the cows a little and uh, we always grazed the heifers and after he sold the cows he switched to custom raising heifers which they still do and um we always grazed those and always my favorite day of the year is the day that the heifers went on grass and right I enjoyed it, and it just made sense to me to limit the the amount of mechanical interference that has to happen because I don't really enjoy equipment. Mm-hmm. If I get about an hour of field work, I'm done. I don't need it anymore. So <laughs> grazing just makes sense to me. Right. That's great. So the way you started your farm seems somewhat unique to me as far as you were able to find other farmers that essentially let you have an incubator farm alongside their existing farm, right? I mean, that's kind of what you're describing. And then mm-hmm, right. you were you were able to move on to a more permanent location now. Do you think that was pretty pivotal to your success today was having the opportunity to come alongside other farmers and them giving you the opportunity to start 
start right alongside to them? Yeah, it was, it was an absolute lifesaver for a you know young 20-year-old farmer starting with nothing. Um, right. Those first farmers that I, I worked for and rented from, yeah, were they were absolutely pivotal in my journey because I didn't I didn't even own a tractor for the first I didn't own a single piece of equipment for the first five years I farmed. I was able to use theirs and you know, also work as a herdsman, take care of their cows while building my herd, my genetics and um making mistakes. It's always cheaper to make mistakes with you know, on somebody else's dime, which may sound wrong, but it it is definitely helpful. Right. It uh yeah, it I'm not sure how to say this. It it took a lot of the risk out of starting. Right. We did that for the first two separate farms for the first about four years of our farming career. Um, yeah, I would be herdsman at the dairy as well as have my own. And wow. they were both both operations trusted me with their cows and pretty much gave me the opportunity to do basically whatever I wanted. They're they're very willing to to work with me on that. That's amazing. So two questions from that. How did you find those opportunities? And then for those listening who, there's a lot of folks who want to start and especially a livestock operation can be very land and capital intensive to get going versus say a vegetable operation, a market garden or something like that. What would your suggestions be to someone who maybe wants to do what you've done, how to find those connections and how to work out a successful working relationship until they are able to secure their own farm lease, like what you've done now? Uh, my first one, I was a, um, I actually started working for them when I was in high school. I was just a milker and mm-hmm. uh, developed a relationship with them. And after I decided not to go to college, I asked them if they'd consider hiring me full-time as a herdsman, which they were, which was really nice to be able to learn under a good team of people there. And um, they really, believed in actually and both of the first two farms I was on they really believed in starting younger people and giving them a chance and um, those people really appreciated a younger person wanting to continue down this down this path I guess so the they were actually both following through connections with relatives but I just that's not the only way to phone them we we found other farms too through ads and farming papers and things like that. And there's people out there who want to help young people get going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it just has to, it does come with a little give and take between right. the owner and the, the wannabe owner, but it can happen. Right. Sure. So after five years or so of doing that, now you're on your own, not your own place, but a, a, a place that you lease. Describe that relationship and the system that you have today. And I know you said you're milking about 70 cows in a forage-based system. So just walk us through kind of the overview of your operation, how it runs. So, yeah, we came to this farm about three and a half. Well, I started talking to them almost four years ago. They were farming conventionally, milking cows conventionally. Um, I couldn't say they were farming conventionally. They were cropping regeneratively, but um, maintaining the milk herd, milking herd conventionally. They knew they wanted to make a change, though. It was time for the father to retire and the son didn't want to continue farming conventionally, at least with the dairy. So they were willing to give me an opportunity to come in and continue running the dairy or continue running the farm as a dairy, just a um, different way than they were. The, the opera, it works out really well. The father and I have a, have an agreement of what it's a written agreement of how we want to see the farm run and certain things I can and can't do and, and things he can and can't do. It's pretty well written out. But the most important thing is we have the same vision of what we want to see the farm doing. As of right now, the farm, except for a new piece of land, the farm is almost entirely in perennials, which was our goal. We think for a dairy, that's, that's just what we, how we want to see things. And um, yeah, it's, it's going really well. We, we he's able to get the retirement income he needs, and we are able to we were able to come into a partially developed resource and continue developing it by putting cattle on the land mm-hmm. and managing it like we all agree manage it 
and it's uh, it's going really well. That's excellent. So you said something about perennials on your dairy farm, which is not something you hear a lot in the dairy world, especially in this part of the country. Talk to us a bit about that system and how you arrived at a perennial based system. And so, yeah, describe that because that's that's a little bit different for a lot of dairy producers to envision a 100% perennial system. Sure, sure. Well, um, like I mentioned earlier, I don't like field work. And um, so <laughs> perennial fits that well. That's right. And <laughs> we, we feed, we feed a, a very high percentage of their diet grazed. I mean, if we, if we are feeding grain, it's only a few pounds. Yeah, we're, we don't have any interest in growing corn silage or, or things like that. Um, we will, when we're, um, when we were seeding the farm down initially, we were using complex cover crops to, I guess, a, like a biological primer to get the farm, to get the soil ready for perennials. And that worked really well. Mm-hmm. But um, now that we're there, I mean, I don't, I don't think there is a more um, regenerative system than adaptively managed perennials. Um, I don't think you can, I don't think it goes any higher than that or any, any better than that. Um, the scale doesn't go any higher. Um, so that, yeah, so that, that's just where we ended up. We, yeah, nobody has interest in growing corn silage or tilling. Um, it's a pretty dry farm. We do have irrigation, but we don't like the idea of, you know, using tillage and drying soil out. And mm-hmm. uh, we're getting good production off the perennials anyway. So mm-hmm. there's just really no reason to, tear it up and start that, you know, sure. start it all, start everything from scratch every few right. years. So, yeah, that's awesome. So the process of getting to a perennial based system, you mentioned complex cover crops, and biological primers. How do you know when your soil is ready to go into perennials or how did you know when you were ready to, to cease the, the complex cover crop mixes and just seed perennials? So in, on the first, Half of the farm that was seeded down before I came there, they actually seeded it directly in the perennial. And um, there was a lot of, I don't want to call it wheat pressure, but we'll call it wheat pressure for this conversation. Sure. Yep. And uh, the stands weren't, stands were a little weak. And and I think these are more, they're more, using biological primers before going to perennials is more crucial if you're coming out of like a corn and bean system. Right. To really get the soil rolling. So. I would say on, on half of the farm, there was no primers and there was lots of, we'll call it weed pressure. Um, on about a quarter of the farm, we did one year of covers before going to perennials. And the, another quarter of the farm, we did two years of covers going to perennials. And the two years of covers going before going into perennials worked the best. And and I'd say how we thought work, um, we'd see earthworm populations explode. Mm-hmm. Any litter left on top of the soil is getting broken down pretty quickly and underneath that mat we started seeing the mat on top of the soil because most of the times we'd graze these covers if we could there'd be lots of fungi on the bottom which kind of just told me well and and also seeing the insect population just explode and that was just telling me that the soil was coming alive and it was it was time for perennials and the perennials would flourish which they have wow that's great so Interesting thing I just observed is that you didn't mention any numbers on a soil test or anything like that. It was all just observations of being out in the field using a shovel or were there maybe some numbers on a soil test that you used as well? Um, no, we've really, I did, I have done some soil testing just okay. kind of for baseline data to see where we're at and see where sure. we're going. Um, I haven't put on any, at this point yet, I haven't put on anything besides whatever comes out of the back end of the cow and then some compost or aged manure that we make on farm. Okay. Wow. And yeah, we, we keep growing more grass. So year after year, we're able to continue raising the stocking rate. So it's working and we're seeing diversity climb and things like that. And that's yeah. Good signs. Awesome. So if you had to pick one, what is the one thing, what is the key to making your system work as far as, increasing that production every year over year and being a very low input driven operation. Um, we'll wrap this in one thing. We'll call it observation and adaptive grazing. So adaptive grazing is a just paying attention, spending the time and, and learning just by observation, 
what a particular piece of ground might need. Figure, you know, just experimenting and, you know, seeing a, maybe a corner of a field really struggling. Um, the grass doesn't look healthy. Maybe there's a thistle patch there. Well, maybe what you do this time, rather than grazing it through, you skip past it. And, and the next time you come around 50 days later, you hit it at a million pound stocking density. Right. Um, things like that can make big difference. Just paying attention and, and uh, managing it. Yeah. As well as you can. So how to get the cattle to take as much as uh, you said, 85% of their dry matter intake and grazing, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Or roughly what, are, how do you make that happen on your farm? How do you get the cows to do that in the grazing system? Like what you've got? Well, first of all, you have to have enough forage to make it worth them or, you know, worth it for them to go out there and graze that. Right. And um, I, a big thing that I have seen over the last couple of years is um, developing the genetics that can really do well grazing that high. We've we've struggled with that in the past and cattle that we bought, we thought we had grazing animals and we thought we could make them graze even smaller amounts than, you know, 85% off pasture. And, and we've went as high as a hundred. I mean, mm-hmm. we, you know, it all depends on the, you know, we're always flexible. This is adaptive, adaptive grazing, adaptive management. Yeah. So genetics was, <clears throat> genetics was something we've struggled with in the past. So yeah, we're doing that. We're, we're moving a few times a day. We rarely move less than three times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, often it's, you know, four or five and we'll move up to 10 times a day. Okay. Um, and we're doing that with, you know, we're not out there 10 times a day. We have Penzagro polywire lifters. Those are pretty handy. Cows are trained to walk under a raised wire. So the timer, the wire lifts up, the timer goes off and the cows walk underneath. And mm-hmm. that's a really good way to be able to, um, run higher densities and really get some impact without you standing out there all day long, babysitting cows. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the management and the multiple times a day. Cause it, that's, it's such a key to getting, well, first of all, to be a good adaptive grazier. And then it's also just a key to getting that impact on the landscape. And I hear a lot from a lot of clients and people that we work with that there's just not enough time to move cows but it seems to be there, that tension right there between having enough time and then making it work to move cows more is is kind of the limiting factor in moving your resource and your grass productivity forward. So if you if you could say one or two things to folks that are kind of on the fence about maybe even investing in some fence lifters or you know what would you say to someone who's on the fence or you know doesn't think they have the time or you know ability to make make that work. I would say like with our dairy cows, we can't afford not to move them at least twice a day. And I would say with with any livestock, you can't afford to move, to not move them at least once a day. And I think it's really important. Um, it's not always cheap to get going, but I think good equipment, grazing equipment makes your life a lot easier. And if you have good grazing equipment, good reels, good posts, a good energizer, it makes your life much easier and you're much more willing to go out there and do it. Right. Um, if it's, if it's going to work for you. Right. That's good. Now, when you're moving, you know, three to 10 times a day, are they walking back to water? You're not moving water that many times a day, right? Correct. Yeah. We have, um, we have buried water lines over most of the farm. And then from those centers, um, we can run above ground collapsible hose and we'll run up to 600 feet of collapsible hose from each of the, each of the risers, which in doing that, we can put the water tank in a different spot every time we're out there. Cows rarely have to walk more than a few hundred feet to water, except in winter. We'll walk them a little farther, which is fine. They handle that just fine. Or the, or we'll water on snow if the conditions. For the non-milking cows, we'll water on snow sure. if we have the right conditions for it. Right. Awesome. So what is the current marketing look like? What does the current marketing look like for your for your milk? So we are in transition organic. Um, currently, we ship conventional milk, which we have all along. And I mean, grazing makes sense in any market. It's just it's a financially correct thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we are transitioning to organic. We we've always farmed organically. This is 
we literally didn't have to make any changes except bend some, fence out some buffers. So we just are looking for a little more stability in the market as we move forward. Okay. You know? So that's what we're looking for. So that's quite amazing. You were you were doing just fine with the operation you had, you know, perennial grass-based system and shipping into a conventional market. You know, I think a lot of times people think, well, you have to be in, you know, organic market or something like that. But apparently in your situation, it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. So the one nice thing about, and that we're going to miss about conventional is um, there's a lot of feed opportunities in conventional markets that aren't as available in organic markets. Um, we have in the past, we've relied on when sipping conventional milk, um, some of these cheaper byproducts can be a really nice supplement to pasture. And we've fed a lot of wheat mids over the years. There's times where those are really affordable. And it's, I mean, it's always nice to be able to just call the local co-op and they can bring out a grain mix and, right. and neighbors, you know, whether, you know, we've had in the past where neighbors had some older grass hay sitting there and we've got it for a steal and the neighbor's happy that his old hay is gone. And we were happy. We were able to bed cows all winter for a couple hundred dollars, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So those opportunities are nice. And and I think going into the future, there'll be even more of these opportunities as more farmers start planting cover crops. So we're seeing it in our neighborhood that they're starting to plant cover crops. Now, you know, it'd be, a, you know, last year we had some rye right across the road from us. It never got up to grazing height, but if it would have got grazing height, we would have absolutely been talking to the neighbors about mm-hmm. grazing some of that. So I think those opportunities would be a lot more frequent in the future. Sure. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about, or you mentioned soil health a little bit earlier about knowing when your soil was ready to go into perennials. So I know that soil health has been an important part of your farming journey. What would you say has been the result of um, becoming aware of and then implementing the six soil health principles on your farm? I mean, just the, the quality, quantity, and I guess you could say stability, stability or resilience of the forage that we've been growing has just been improving uh, year after year. And another thing that we didn't necessarily think about when we started this is our cow health has improved dramatically and it's not like we were riddled with problems before this but i mean we just rarely have health issues now it's just it's so rare for us to have something um and in the conventional world especially the conventional non-grazing world so many of these health issues in cows are just considered considered that's just considered normal i mean that's just what you deal with right and that doesn't have to be the case right yep for sure yeah and i mean i was on your farm a couple of weeks back, stopped by for a few minutes and looking out in the field. And it was just like, just a picture of, of plenty. And just, it was beautiful. You're just standing there and waste, waste tall grass on me anyhow. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> you know, birds are, birds are chirping and flying all over the place. And it was fabulous. I mean, you don't see that on a lot of dairy farms and it's, you know, really cool to see what you've done and, you know, the unique and, I think somewhat progressive way your dairy farming is a really good template for others to follow. So I know you've done a lot of, I know education is really important to you. And so I want to switch and talk a little bit about your new role with SFA as the Minnesota Dairy Initiative Coordinator. So you started with us back in early May, I think first of May, starting to take over some of the responsibilities for of MDI. Talk to us about MDI. What is the Minnesota Dairy Initiative, and what is your role and SFA's role within that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, even before yeah, before I started with SFA, I've had an MDI team of my own for a little while now. So MDI, it's a, an organization that helps farmers create on-farm teams to support them and help them set and reach goals. And on this, on your team, you can have anybody you want. So lots of farms uh, will have their veterinarian on there, their nutritionist on there. They might have their lender on there. Personally, I have my my coordinator, it's myself and my wife, and then we bring on other dairy grazers or other grazers. to. And it's, it's just nice to have these people on because they help you see things on your operation that you may not see. 
Mm. And they're there to, and all the, all the other, the coordinators supplied by the MDI coordinators are really good about helping you set your goals, putting them on paper, checking up on you and keeping you accountable. And um, I find myself that that's my favorite part about it is because, you know, if I, you know, I'm not great at holding myself accountable, but if somebody's, if I know somebody's going to call in a month or send me an email in a month asking me if I got these three things done, I will do it and I'll make sure it gets done. And that's been, that's been most helpful for me. So like my role as the MDA coordinator for through SFA is if, you know, if, well, if any farm asks for me to come on and help them out, that's, that's what I do. So they may want to implement some covered crops, try some alternative forages. Maybe they'll start, you know, they want to start grazing some or getting some heifers on pasture, you know, any of those things, anything, I come out and help them make a plan. Excellent. Okay. So I think you said it just a minute ago, it's more of like accountability for farmers and then helping identify and set goals and, Mm -hmm. and then having another set of eyes or a couple pairs of eyes looking at your business to see opportunities and, you know, options that you may not have seen yourself. Yeah. 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 That's what I've personally, that's what I get out of it most. And it seems like that's a lot of farms. They're just looking for that. Yeah. Exactly. So okay. accountability and an extra set of eyes. Yep. So what would be an example of a goal that a dairy farmer would have that you've worked with or maybe one that you had for your own farm that mm-hmm. your team has helped you to achieve? And yeah. Yeah. There, there's um, well, an example, and, and we've seen this on more than one farm, but an organic producer may be struggling with growing corn. So we help them make a plan with getting some alternative forages uh, where you don't have to worry about weed pressure in them or something like that. And they may also want to improve their grazing so we can talk them through, show them, show up on farm and talk about options to improve the grazing, whether that's moving the cows more frequently, leaving more residue, you know, anything like that. Okay. So how would someone get started with the Minnesota Dairy Initiative and form that team? All it all it has to start with is an email or a call to MDI. They have their website, which they don't have in front of me, and I'm sure Jonathan can link in the yep. show notes. We can link um, it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, yep. yeah. All you have to do is reach out to them and they can set you up with your with your MDI coordinator and and um you can think about who you want on your team and we get together and make something happen. Okay. And I, I think it's safe to assume, but I have to ask the question since I'm the host, this is just for dairy farmers, correct? With a name like Minnesota Dairy Initiative, I would assume that's the case. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Yep. seems like a program like that would be valuable for, well, any type of farmer really, but. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's really unique. So what is like a schedule? Like, you have team meetings every so often. How do you, who calls the meetings and yeah, is it the farmer, the farmer kind of runs that or the coordinator or. Well, you can, you can set it up however you want. A lot of people are every two to four months. Some people just meet twice a year. There's probably some people that only meet once a year. You know, personally, I like that every two to three months because then you can, it seems like you can work more things off your list and you're not forgetting about the last meeting before you have your next one. Okay. Um, it can be set up any way you want. It's all farmer driven. All right. On your operation, what is the value or what has been the value of having an MDI team? And do you think you would be, this is maybe a loaded question, but do you think you would be where you are today without having that team surrounding you and providing that accountability? I definitely won't be as far as I, you know, as far as I made it because um, like I've said earlier, just the accountability portion, having somebody checking up on you, making sure that what you said was going to happen is happening. It's been really helpful. Okay. It, um, just in, in goal setting, I mean, mm-hmm. creating a mission statement, making one year, five year, 10 year plan really helps the farmer create a vision where they want to be, what's possible and things like that. Excellent. Yeah. that's quite a unique program and it seems like 
everybody I've talked to about MDI and who's had one, they're just, they're pretty successful in what they do. And I think mm-hmm. having that accountability and also that perspective from somebody else looking, you know, it's always easier to run mm-hmm. your neighbor's farm than it is your own. Right. So having, yeah, absolutely. having a bunch of other farmers helping you run your farm, you know, if you're willing to be teachable and let them see things about your operation and you can just accelerate your progress forward. So that's, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I should mention too, that it's, it's not just, um, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be just your individual farm on a team. And there's also, you can also set up peer groups. Right. There's a grazing peer group. I believe there's a, a robot peer group, which is also nice because now you have, have an MDI assigned coordinator coming out, setting up the meetings, keeping track of everybody. And that works, you know, really well also. Excellent. Yeah. Sounds just like an extension of what SFA likes to call the farmer to farmer network, just farmers learning Absolutely. from each other and sharing ideas and their progress. And I think that's really key for making forward progress in agriculture is, you know, working together and learning from each other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Derek, it's, you know, 2023, what in your mind is the state of the dairy industry? I know there's been some tumultuous years and I remember even when I was a teenager, we had close friends that were dairy farmers and, uh, I remember some really hard times back then as well. And so I'm just curious what your perspective from where you are, and obviously you've seen it over, you know, course of quite a few years here now, where do you think it is at and where do you think we're going and what are going to be some exciting opportunities for dairy farmers in the next couple of years? Mm-hmm. So yeah, right now, um, conventional milk prices aren't very good. Quite a roller coaster of prices out there. Personally, I think there's a lot of opportunity in the in the world of connecting directly with the consumer or at least shortening the chain um, from the farmer to the consumer um, consumers have never been more interested mm-hmm. in what we're doing and how we're doing it we see that with some of our direct sales of meat and things sure. they are really willing to learn and honestly it's, it's easier to teach a consumer about soil health than a farmer because they don't have much for preconceived notions of how sure. a farm is supposed to run. Um, right. And they're, th- these consumers are really willing to listen and they want to learn. Mm-hmm. And they and they understand and appreciate what we can offer as far as, you know, smaller farmers working on soil health and um, things like that. I, I do see the industry continuing down this path of, um, you know, maybe larger farms providing more conventional type dairy and you know your smaller and mid-sized farms developing closer relationships with the consumer mm-hmm. and um, profiting off that so you think for dairy producers who are maybe willing to do things just a little bit different there's there's a bright future if you're kind of able to tap into some of these specialty markets um, and that's driven that's being consumer driven by their desire to see change in agriculture as well. Is that, I mm-hmm. think that's what you're saying, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Especially if you're a people person, I mean, there is, there's endless opportunity out there for farmers who, who um, want to create a different product. What are some things that you think, or maybe I'll back up just a little bit. What are some visions that you may have for maybe the next five years or so? ways you see either your farm playing a part or maybe some of your neighbor's farms or friends in shortening that chain to the consumer? Mm-hmm. Personally, we're um, developing beef sales with retired dairy cows. Uh, I think it's a really interesting way to be able to offer consumers a really quality product at a slight discount from you know, a grass-fed steer or something like that. And we could take take a dairy cow fattener up on grass for a couple months and um, make a really tasty, really high quality product. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And um, the consumers are hungry for almost anything we'll put in front of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ones, the consumers we sell to are are always asking us for other products. So it's really only limited by the farmer's imagination, time and checkbook, I guess. Sure. Sure. So there could be some opportunities to collaborate with other farmers. If you don't have a mm-hmm. product yourself, you know, networking and mm-hmm. developing a shared marketplace could be a big, big help for a lot of farmers in the next couple of years. Absolutely. 
And I think most farmers would be better off. A lot of farmers would be better off working together um, rather than going at this alone. Um, right. Not everybody's a people person. Not everybody has all the resources they need on their farm. You know, maybe one farmer has some extra forage. He could do all the finishing of the cull cows or whatever, or um, farmers could work together. One could raise the heifers. One could handle the dairy and the processing. You know, there's endless opportunity out there. Right. For this. Right. And then, you know, going back to the power of the MDI team, you know, finding those, making those connections, finding those other folks to work with, like, it's going to be accelerated by having that many other people around you looking at your operation mm-hmm. and looking at options. So, yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. just really, really cool how that, how that could help. So, yeah. 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 And anybody could be on your team. You can have um, right. processing people on your team. You can have state milk inspectors on your team, whatever you need, or plant inspectors on your team, mm-hmm. whatever you need to put it together. It's all there. Right. Excellent. So another question for you is, I like to ask this question. A lot of people just kind of see where their mind's at. So what, what's one idea or thing in agriculture you think the majority of us get wrong? Like, what are we missing? Um, I would say, I just see this a lot and I just dealt with this recently trying to, and, and this pertains just, you know, I guess just to, to dairy and beef. And I, I suppose sheep and things as well, livestock as well not having the correct genetics for the job. I, that's just my, as far as, as, far as a, a production thing, mm-hmm. I see so many people struggling with genetics that don't fit and they're trying to force them to fit and it just does not work. You need the correct animal. If you want to be a high forage person, you need the correct animal to do the job. And it's probably, the genetics for that animal probably aren't going to come out of a shiny catalog. Right. So this is interesting because you mentioned this earlier, genetics. So I feel like we should dive a little mm-hmm. deeper into genetics. So what, okay, what in, what's the correct animal for the job or describe on your operation for what you're doing? What does the correct animal look like or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll back up a little bit here. Over the course of us starting farming several times in two there's two different times, especially we bought two different times we bought smaller herds and um, we thought we could make those genetics work for us. And they were a giant failures, very, very expensive failures that took years to dig out from. Have, yeah, we, we found out that this, having the correct animal for the job is just essential. So we, and those were more conventional type genetics that like I see buy out of a shiny catalog. Right. So we found we kind of have to go back to the basics. You know, some of our initial genetics, actually pretty much all of the genetics we have in our herd today didn't even come from the US. Mm. So most of them didn't. Okay. Um and if they have, they've been kind of nativized, I guess you could say, to sure. the US. Adapted to yeah, your, Adapt, your sure. climate. Sure. Yep. yep. So um so yeah, we've we've been working through that. So right now on our farm, what we're looking for now, and it, it doesn't breed doesn't matter that much. And I guess I'll just say most of our cows are some kind of cross between Kleckie and Jersey, and there's a little Norwegian red in there. Mm-hmm. There's a smattering of other breeds, but the breed doesn't matter. We're looking for a certain phenotype, mm-hmm. and for us, that's about an 1100 to 1200 pound cow. She doesn't have to, you know milk the tank full we don't ask too much of them because we just find if we do that then um, they just ask more from us and i'm not really interested in and baby or cow so we're yeah we're we're looking for a smaller cow that can put high quality milk in the tank and and high component milk lots of butter fat lots of protein they also have to have some maternal ability um, i expect them to calve on their own we don't tolerate any um, have it will help a cow, but that'll you know that'll be the last calf they have. The last time you help them have a calf, right? <laughs> yep, right. Yep, they only get to do that once. Um, and and after a couple of years, we used to we've had people tell us our our culling practices are strict, but um, and and we've had people call it cruel, but I think it's almost more cruel to continue propagating those genetics that need to be propped up by um, you know large amounts of grain or 
input like absolutely um yeah uh, yep. parasiticides and things like that yeah i couldn't agree more i've i've been through too many taking cattle in for c-sections to get a calf out because the you know the cow mm-hmm. that should have never been bred and it's far more traumatic and stressful for the cow to be put through something like that than just don't rebreed her you know find another exactly she needs to go down the road and go somewhere else so mm-hmm. yeah exactly it's not it's in the cattle's best interest and it's also in our best interest as the farmers too so mm-hmm. i guess that's to say in the in the last five years just by creating by simplifying our system and um by getting rid of the or culling out the cows that need assistance or need babying and and just by simplifying the system, going to a simpler ration, things like that, and we we were we've been able to cut over little over fifty percent of the labor out of our operation with the same number of cows. That's just amazing. Just by simplifying things, yeah, it it really pays. And that's the result of pursuing the correct genetics for your context, what you're trying to do. Yes, exactly. That's amazing. Yeah, that's been the biggest key to our success is the. Figuring out the correct animal and making more of them. Okay. So for someone listening who wants to figure that out for their operation, do you have some resources or some things that have guided you on that journey to finding those genetics? I know you Mm -hmm. said you're not chasing a breed and I would agree. We're not necessarily chasing a breed. We're chasing a phenotype. So what, you know, what are some resources or some things that folks can dig into a little bit more on this topic? Mm -hmm. So a lot of our, a lot of our genetics or a lot of our success of it has just been paying attention to which cows do best. And uh, but there's also a few books on it. There's some book by uh, Newman Turner talks about developing some developing cattle. Um, there's um, building a profitable dairy herd that was written in I think 1953. That one had some interesting stuff in it. Alan Williams has a bunch of articles on selecting the correct phenotype and line breeding. So we've been, uh, I've, I guess I've been a kind of a student of genetics for years on my yep. own. Um, right. and, and a lot of it, it, most of, most of this type of farming literally just goes back to observation mm-hmm. and just paying attention. Who does well, who's the cow you can forget you have. And another good thing is just getting on farms and seeing what works for other people. Right. Yep. And and maybe getting some genetics from those farms if you can. Right. So I 100% agree that observation is one of the keys to becoming a better manager. How, you know, farmers are pretty busy people. How do you keep track of your observations and make notes of what you've observed so you don't lose them when you go back to make decisions? Do you have some tools or some keys to, to making that work for you? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it is just read it again and again and again. Um, sure. But it, I write some things down and in my barn, I have a great big whiteboard okay. that I write important things down. And if I see it every day, I'll remember it. And right. eventually it just kind of implants itself in my brain and then I can't forget it. Right. So that's right. been a really, yeah, nice tool. Okay. And most of us are carrying a little computer in our cell phone around yeah. these days. So uh, there's a lot of yeah. tools yeah. there that, that can be used to keep records and notes of, of what, mm-hmm. who's doing well and, so, okay. And with, with dairy cows, you're looking at them every day. Right. That's, that's true. Too. Right. You're working with them pretty close. So, right. yeah. That's excellent. Well, I will, we will link some of these, these resources you mentioned. We'll try to link some of those down in the show notes for people if they want to do a little more digging on, on genetics. And I agree. It's probably one of the most overlooked things for folks getting into regenerative agriculture, mm-hmm. especially in the livestock sector is the genetics. You know, a lot of people kind of can have a train wreck and you know they may have had a lot of the right ingredients for success but buying genetics just from the neighbor who's not doing what you're trying to do is is a sure way to you know have a wreck <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely you know it's funny i have to tell a story before we move on to another topic but when i was a early teenager i i got into dairy goats and you know when you're new to livestock you read all the you know what you're supposed to do and most of the stuff you read is we'll go buy registered animals and so that's what I did. My first couple of dairy goats were registered and then had the opportunity to buy a goat down the road from someone and actually ended up just trading like 10 chickens for this goat. And at the time I didn't think too much. I think the value was maybe like 30 or 40 bucks back then, but 
I was kind of skeptical, but that goat ended up being my best goat and far out producing and outperforming my quote unquote registered animals. So anyhow, just an early lesson for me in my teens of genetics, you know, paper genetics and the shiny, the shiny magazine genetics aren't always, don't always equal financial viability for your operation and or production. So anyhow, yeah. So good. Yeah, we've, seen, we've seen that before too. Yep. <laughs> yep. For sure. This has been great. So we're going to try to wrap it up here pretty soon. And uh, a couple last questions that I have for you. So you've had a lot of experience with, you know, leasing farm operations, kind of what I call an incubator farm. What do you think are some important ingredients for successful leased operation relationships between landlord and and the operator manager? Mm -hmm. I think it's important to have expectations left out pretty clearly. You know, if, if there's maybe there's certain goals you want to reach, things like that. And the less you see that person, I think the more crucial it is that they are on paper where mm. you both know what they are. I mean, per, with my per, with the relationship I have with my landlord now, it works pretty well that we see each other and we probably talk to each other, you know, 10 times a week throughout the day because he's on the farm. He's still doing stuff on the farm. And then we're able to have those conversations. And and if we wouldn't have these conversations as much, I think it would be even more important to have them on paper. Right. And uh, I think it's always important to, uh, you know, as a, as a leasee, I think it's important to, well, and, and then as a, as a landowner, um, I think it's important to be willing to give and take a little bit. They're not always going to do everything exactly the way you want it. And, but that those things can always be fixed with a conversation. Sure. Okay. So having things on paper and more detail, if there's not a lot of interaction with the other party is, has been key. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would think so. Yeah. That, that's what we found. That's excellent. And uh, yeah. So what are some of your favorite tools or equipment? I know you said you're not an equipment guy. So, um, mm -hmm. and I totally get that on the same way, but what are some things that you have found to be really important to your success? Mm -hmm. So I have an energizer with the remote and that is the remote is my favorite tool. Okay. Um, that I use several times a day. And also, and I also mentioned earlier the, my Penzagro lifters. Yep. Those are really nice. I mean, looking at the time, my cows just got moved 25 minutes ago yep. and I didn't have to be there. Cause you're, you were chatting with me while the cows were getting moved. Exactly. That's yep. awesome. Yep. So, uh, that makes, and then, and I think I actually said this earlier too, having quality fencing equipment. And then as long as, you know, the brands, you know, you might run one kind of wire, a different, you know, a different brand of reel and an even different brand of post. Find what good ones work for you. Try out different ones. You know, we have a combination of geared reels and mini reels. We run mostly pigtail posts, but there's also, or, or ring top posts rather, but there's also places where, uh, a pigtail post might work better or a fiberglass post. I mean, we have some of those too. Yeah. And, and a, I mean, a good perimeter fence I and mean, good fences make good neighbors. Right. I just, I think quality, we've, we've struggled in the past. We didn't have quality equipment and uh, we, we definitely didn't do as good of a job grazing then because it was just difficult to get it right. done. Right. Yep. And uh, now, now that we have it, it's so, so much easier to do it. Right. Right. 100% agree. Yep. Quality equipment makes a massive difference in the, when you're doing something, right. especially something you do every single day, multiple times a day. Well, and I always think too, I mean, you could spend $1,500 on grazing equipment, which may seem like a lot, but that's two tractor payments. You know, <laughs> it's, right. it, it really doesn't go far. It's right. <laughs> yep. For sure. Excellent. So last question here, because you've got a lot of experience in those of us who've, who've gained experience, it doesn't come easily. Sometimes you have to go through some, some seasons of failing or not. I don't know if failure is the right word, just opportunities for learning is maybe a better way to call it. So what are some opportunities for learning that you've experienced in your past that have set you up for later success or have helped to get you where you are today? Mm -hmm. I think I've spent enough time on, on the um, wrong genetics, but that was the most expensive one. We've also had some seeding failures where I didn't do, uh, I guess I've, I've 
I'll put it this way. Um, and it's part of why I lean towards perennials. I've never regretted seeding down a perennial field, but there's been a couple times where I regretted seeding down annuals. Okay. And, and I, and some of the failures just goes back to me not wanting to be a tractor person and seeding through and rushing through a seeding and not getting um, good seeding rates down and dealing with the effects of that, whether that's, you know, undesirable forbs in there or annual grasses or spare soil. Yeah. Those, those have been the big ones. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So I know we already talked about a few books that were related to uh, genetics, particularly any other Mm -hmm. favorite resources or books or, you know, anything really Mm -hmm. um, publications Mm -hmm. that you think would be handy for listeners to, to look into. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorites is the the farm as ecosystem by Jerry Bernetti. That's a really book dives deep into soil function and, and how it works for you. Um, and another one, Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. That's mm, a great yep. book. Um, yeah. Those are some of my favorites. And I've always, I've always, on the early part of my journey, when I thought I was more of a, um, I was going to get more into the direct marketing stuff, um, I guess old Joel Salton's books really just opened me up to the thought that I don't have to farm like everybody else. Right. Um, it just opened my mind up. I liked all those. So. Excellent. Excellent. Very, that's a very good list of resources for folks. So, uh, well, Derek, any final thoughts or things you want to leave our listeners with before we wrap up? Just, uh, I guess stay open-minded and if you put together an MDI team, if you can, I think it's a very underutilized resource and, uh, the support's there. So please reach out to us. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Derek, for taking the time to do this today. Really, really appreciate having you on the SFA team and looking forward to working with you more and learning from you as well. So if you want to reach out to Derek, his email is uh, Derek, D-E-R-E-K at SFA-MN.org. So uh, thanks again, Derek, for for being here today. You bet. Nice talking with you, Jonathan. Absolutely. So please check out the show notes for links to the resources that we've mentioned. And as always, feel free to reach out to info at sfa-mn.org with questions or comments on this episode. Check out the website sfa-mn.org for more information on us, resources, and upcoming events for you and your farm. We'll look forward to being with you on our next episode. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, Consider supporting us by making a donation or becoming a member at sfa-mn.org. Thanks for listening.